Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Hot topic in the news over the past few weeks around remote work, or as some like to call it, the joy of working in pajamas, and the call back to the office. You know, what do you think? Office, remote, combination, what's working in your world? You've definitely had those days where we relish the comfort of our own home, swapping suits for sweats or sometimes swimsuits, and commuting means dodging the dog on the way to the coffee pot. And honestly, I mean, who doesn't enjoy skipping the traffic, the hustle, and the, the got a minute, this interruptions? You know, I consider it a win personally when I have a super productive day and not even put shoes on. Uh, I mean, a paddleboard every morning or kayak in the, in the evening. If I miss a morning, I'll do it at lunch. And it's just remote can be exceptional. Really like the water, but I do miss people. Uh, some of them anyway. Can you relate to that? The pandemic certainly demonstrated that remote work is not only possible, even in industries that never would have embraced it, but for many, it's actually incredibly productive. But the lingering question we have to ask ourselves, I mean, is it truly sustainable? You know, can we keep up the pace without the structure of an office? And more importantly, how do we keep that special sauce, that corporate culture alive when we're spread across cities or even countries? You know, maintaining a strong company culture while working remotely is like trying to make a sandwich with one hand. I mean, it's possible, but it's tricky. I mean, it requires more creativity, more intention, virtual team building, digital recognition, consistent communication. I mean, these are all new tools of the trade, but it's no longer about shared physical space, but purpose and shared values. And if you aren't super strong at that category, then uh, grab a hold of my book. There's a chapter in there specifically about that. Remote work is not without its drawbacks, of course. I mean, the blurred lines between work and personal life, the potential for social isolation, the infamous Zoom fatigue. I mean, as leaders, we have to navigate those challenges with empathy and flexibility. So is the future of work destined to be carried out amidst the chatter of our living rooms and the comfort of our PJs and the dogs barking in the background? Maybe. But only if we can strike a balance a balance between the freedom of remote work and the cohesion of a shared culture. A balance between productivity and burnout. After all, just because we can work in our pajamas or without shoes doesn't mean that we should never get dressed. I mean, I still wear shoes, sometimes even when I don't have to. But what is your take as a leader? Remote, in-office, hybrid? Are you calling people back or demanding them back as some of them have? Uh, are you flexing? You know, drop me a note and let me know what is working well for you in this crazy environment that we're in right now. Today's episode is sponsored by Champion Leadership Group, the ultimate resource for SaaS founders and C-suite executives to accelerate capital-efficient growth, unlock your business's potential by leveraging our time-tested SaaS growth toolkit, blueprints, and frameworks designed to help you scale ARR from seven to eight to nine figures. Collaborate with an elite network of SaaS visionaries, celebrate wins, and overcome setbacks together. How about that? Prioritize strategic decisions and create profitable growth, premium valuation, and freedom. Elevate your SaaS trajectory with Champion Leadership. Learn more at championleadership.com. 
Last week on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, we had Sam Malikajan on. He is CEO and founder of OneScreen.ai. It's a marketplace provider for buying and selling out-of-home advertising. So imagine being able to track and distribute mass marketing just the same way we do digital. I mean, it is amazing stuff. And our founder last week is Michael Maximoff, co-founder of Folderly. It's a SaaS tool that keeps your emails out of the spam folder so your message gets right to your ideal clients and prospects. It's a, an absolutely brilliant and much-needed solution in the marketplace today. My favorite example, Michael and I met at an event in Austin. And when he was getting his travel visa to the U.S., even the messages from the U.S. consulate were going to spam. How about that? You know, are you sure that yours aren't? Uh, I wasn't. And uh, so if you missed either one of those episodes, go back and give it a listen and, uh, and then take action. Some great, great opportunities there uh, for solutions that work right in your company. My guest this week is Brandon Metcalf, multi-time founder, investor, and advisor, currently the founder and CEO of Place Technology. It's a software solution purpose-built for SaaS companies that natively joins the flexibility and automation of subscription management, revenue operations, and billing with financial forecasting, cash management, and business analytics. Absolutely brilliant. He has extensive experience creating, scaling, and leading global companies with a deep understanding of building successful software companies on the Salesforce platform. He's also the host of the Cash and Burn podcast. Welcome our guest, Brandon Metcalf. Hey, Brandon. Welcome to SaaS Fuel. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be a guest. Well, tell me a little, little bit about your background. Four companies, three that are up and still running. Um, I mean, amazing history up until up until now and you've got place and you've got assemble you know tell me about that journey yeah i mean if you would have asked me what 15 years ago what i'd be doing i would not have guessed this this is for sure um so you know my background i started in in financial services right out of school did well there got a little bit bored with it and then uh, stumbled into staffing and recruiting was in that space for a little while um doing recruiting but also uh, leading different regions um and then it was in recruiting that I got the idea for my first company. Um, so I was my last role, I was setting up technology for a uh, $30, $40 million um, executive search firm based in San Francisco. And we wanted to scale. And, you know, my job was to put the technology in place that would allow us to scale both the infrastructure, hardware and software to, to do that. So I pretty much changed everything in the company. Um, and the last thing I was looking at was our software. Um, and we were on a software that was just really painful to use. And I looked at the market and couldn't find anything else that we liked. So I ended up coming up with an idea of like, why don't we just build our own? Um, so started that journey in, in 2009. And that turned into what became my first company, which is Talent Rover, uh, which was incorporated in 2011. And Talent Rover was a staffing and recruiting operating system built on Salesforce. Um, and scaled that company to, you know, nine offices in eight countries. Um, we had customers in more than 40. Um, Adeco was our largest client. We had the global relationship with them, which massive, massive. Pretty big. Companies. Yeah. Lots of stuff going on with that. Then, um, you know, we got acquired in March of 18, which was exciting and a fun experience to go through. Um, I stayed with the buyer for just a few months and came up with the idea of I wanted to launch Place. Um, and Place is... Really, a, a product that I wanted to create to solve the challenges that I faced while running Talent Rover, 
which was a lot around financial forecasting. So with Talent Rover, that was a business we raised about $28 million for, um, but we did it in a very unconventional way where most of that was raised from angel investors. Um, and we never really went through, like we never had an institutional investor. We never did VC or any of that. We never went through like the proper funding rounds. Like we never did an A or a B or any of that stuff. Um, but we, essentially we always had an open round. So we had a very close group of angel uh, investors that really believed in what we were doing. And, you know, every three to six months, I would advise them on how much additional cash we were going to need. And they would just continue to fund the business, which looking back was a pretty crazy experience of, of how that all went. Um, but it, it worked for us. Um, but the challenge it, it led me to was I had to develop all these financial models and I had to get really good at cash flow forecasting. Um, yeah, to be able don't to, want to be wrong. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> and of course, there's, you know, things that happen. So, but you want to get as close sure. as you can um, to really understand how much cash you're going to need and when. So that's what I wanted to solve it with place initially was that was so time consuming. You know, I would spend so many hours a month myself. Our accounting team would spend tons of hours, but there just had to be a better way. So in 2019, we started building place to do financial forecasting, but I had a different vision of what I wanted to do. I wanted to do financial forecasting inside of Salesforce because I wanted to bring the financial elements into where the business typically operates and give visibility to everyone in the business about the financials. So started off doing that. At the same time, um, you know, I was getting hit up by a lot of just people who knew me and were asking for some consulting advice. Um, so when I was first launching Place, I was like, yeah, I could use the extra income, the extra cash coming in. So why would I not do the consulting stuff? My consulting piece turned into my second company, um, which is now called Blueprint Advisory. Where originally it was consulting staffing recruiting firms or staff or, or other companies about just things to think about with Salesforce and how to use Salesforce and, you know, other business services around that. But it was all centered around Salesforce. That company evolved into uh, focusing on helping businesses create Salesforce products, um, doing Salesforce customizations and also really being the distribution arm for place. So Blueprint would do all the implementations and customer service or customer development work for, for place customers. So. You know, moving along through the years, um, place we started to figure out we had some challenges with finance people not really wanting to do financial forecasting solely inside of Salesforce. It was really foreign to them. Um, so we ran into some challenges with acquiring customers. Um, so we started to look at, okay, what, what's, what's the real challenge here? Why, why is this? And a lot of it was, you know, just Salesforce is a new environment for most finance people to operate in. Um, most people have some exposure to it. Usually they get like sales data out of it. But some of the challenges with that is the sales data isn't always the cleanest or the most accurate. So usually it's it's not um, taken into full accountability as to what it is. Like they discount it. Um, so overall, there's a bit of like not the most positive reaction from finance people about Salesforce. So then we started to figure out, okay, how do we bridge that gap? What's missing? What would, what would help really unify finance and, and the rest of the business? And we kept hearing about a couple competitors, one specifically that our, our customers were, our prospects were going to buy before they bought us because they wanted help with two specific things. They wanted help with revenue recognition. Um, so ASC 606, all of that fun stuff. And they wanted help with billing. 
Um, so we started really looking at this and we said, well, we actually need that in our product because from a product standpoint, we need the sales data to flow into finance data and be accurate. So let's tackle RevRec and let's tackle billing. So in 2021, we rolled out a revenue and billing um, product at place. And then that led to, um, in the beginning of 2022, we had a customer ask us to produce reports off of bookings. Um, which, long story short, that rolled that led to us rolling out our customer subscription management product. So, Place really evolved to become customer subscription management, revenue recognition and billing, and financial and financial reporting all inside of Salesforce. So, essentially, you install Place in the Salesforce. Now you have an operating system for B two B SaaS companies. So, doing well, growing, doing its thing. So, um, at the same time, Blueprint was busy. Um, Blueprint was growing. Blueprint was. Um, uh, an interesting company because, you know, one of my old um, uh, colleagues from Talent Rover was really running Blueprint on a daily basis and he was just kind of crushing it. Um, so turned it into a multi-million dollar consulting firm, profitable, which is great because place, you know, like most SaaS companies, you're not profitable for a while. Um, but then that led to an opportunity with Blueprint where we were approached about, can we do give some advisory services to, to Salesforce about how to think about staffing and just think about recruiting? So we did that. And that actually led to the third company that I have, which is called Assemble, which is a recruiting and staffing software built on Salesforce once again, but with a very different approach to, to how you operate your staffing firm. So instead of buying just one platform that has everything put together, we have a philosophy that you should be able to assemble business process specific applications inside of Salesforce to complete your, your workflow. So assemble is off to the races. That company was launched in, in September. So there's a lot going on. <laughs> yes. Yes. It sounds like it. No, it's really interesting. The, the finance people, you know, weren't crazy about Salesforce. Do you think they, they're thinking that, well, it's just for salespeople because it's in the name? Well, it was interesting because there's some people. Some finance execs and, and folks in finance that really got it. They they understood why we were wanting to do what we were doing because the connection between, you know, the revenue producing teams and the finance teams is such a critically important relationship. Um, and doing that in multiple systems or in spreadsheets just leads to so much additional work and right. such a disconnect. Um, communication disconnects, data disconnect, a lot of just additional overhead with. You know, what's the system of truth? Um, where do I get accurate information? Where do I get updated information about clients? I, it's just all so deeply connected that there's a lot of finance people that goes, we get it. We understand it, which is why we needed to fill in the missing gaps to complete what we call the sales to cash workflow, where we need to go from the sale all the way through collecting cash in one seamless process. Um, other folks that were a bit more hesitant were not as bought into Salesforce itself. And I think that's what we saw with the early success that we had is the companies that really want to operate their business on Salesforce really embrace it. Um, the people that didn't, it was more of an uphill battle explaining why. Um, but I think that dynamics is starting to shift because by adding the different product components that we have, We've also changed our buyer persona. So it's now not just a forecasting tool. It's actually not the, the forecasting tool is not the product we actually lead with now. Now we lead with customer subscription management, revenue and billing, because it actually has the biggest impact on the company, especially in an economic climate like right, we have right. now. 
right? So like revenue leakage and, you know, making sure your customers get billed correctly and upsells and renewals and all of that stuff is so deeply important to success that that's really the heart of what we do now. And then finance becomes a nice uh, addition to it. Which is really helpful. And just having that, that full picture, like you're saying, because it's, you know, a lot of people will look at MRR, ARR, that kind of thing, and, and you know, forecast out that way. But it, it really starts, that's a, a lagging indicator where billing is, that's really important, especially for forecasting, because that's really the leading indicator. Because you totally. know something's sold, you know what time, you know, what that revenue time is going to be for implementation until you actually start seeing cash. So there is that, that lag. Yeah. And so having a tool that really shows you that is just absolutely invaluable. Yeah, I talk a lot about bookings, billings, and revenue and really explaining what the difference between those things are. And you you nailed it. Like revenue is a lagging indicator. It's going to show you what happened in the past. Billings is showing you, you know, your cash that's about to come in, but your booking is showing you the future revenue of the company. Right. Um, and how do you report and visualize and understand all of those things? And that's really why we needed customer subscription management, revenue, billing, and then financial reporting tied to it um, so that you can see the full visibility of the company. Yeah, really smart. And that's also the reason why you need finance and sales to work together. A lot of times in, in companies, those are, are departments that certainly butt heads. It seems a lot of me finance, you know, those are just the, the guys that, you know, tell us we can't spend money. But uh, no, I mean, it's actually really having them work together is where the power is. Yeah, and it's fun for us because we get to see that. We get to see those teams and those teams as much as, you know, they can have different different perspectives of things. They're all wanting the same thing. They all want the most profitable, successful deal for the company. Right. Um, so the more you can unify them and put them on the same page and um, and get rid of all the friction, because uh, a lot of the friction is the communication, the timing, the trust of the data. All of those things just break down the relationship. So if you fix those things and you just let people connect with people, then all of a sudden you can have a healthy relationship. That's really interesting. I like the the approach that you took in, in listening to your clients and understanding, you know, what is it that they're looking for? And, and I think it's brilliant. What are they buying before they buy our solution? And, and listening to that and then going out and, and building that into your solution. Yeah, I mean, we we really went hard on that where, you know, I wanted to understand why people weren't buying. And I, don't, I also want to understand why customers were buying, right? And wanted to make sure we, we tried to figure out what would make customers the most successful. Um, and, but a lot of, a lot of the time in, in 2021 was, was spent and even 2022 was spent on let's dissect every deal that we lost and let's check our ego and let's check our perception of why the customer should have bought and, you know, they're foolish for not doing or whatever excuse you want to make up to, to make yourself feel better and say, let's, let's get into the brass tacks. Like what did they buy? And we did the analysis of all the deals that we lost in 2021 and in 2022, 50% of the deals we lost, bought nothing. Um, so we spent a lot of time educating a market on this new way of, of doing business for buyers who weren't necessarily looking to solve that problem or didn't realize they had that problem yet. Um, we also spent a lot of time focused on how do we make a switch from outbound lead sales to inbound lead sales. And that was fundamental in, in the change of the business where, you know, up until Q4 of, of 2022, so last quarter, outbound was our biggest resource for revenue. Our sales team going out to connect with people, bringing people in. Q4, it finally flipped. 
Um, Q4 was our best quarter ever for the company as well, which is interesting considering the uh, the landscape, the economic landscape that we're in. But we're really focused on, you know, now that we are feeling this product market fit with these new components, and we can you can just see it because when a prospect sees that they go, I get exactly what you solve for me. Um, I know exactly what this is. I know how this can impact my business. It was a magical thing. But then how do you take that and say, how do we educate the market that we exist? Right. Um, I hired a, a VP of marketing in the beginning of the year of 2022, and he really went down this path of what do we need to do to create awareness and drive inbound? So, and it led to some interesting things. Like I'm a heavy um, content creator, creator on LinkedIn. I'm constantly posting on LinkedIn um, really to drive awareness of who we are, who I am. Um, he had me launch a podcast, which I never thought I'd be uh, a podcast host. Um, it actually turned out to be one of my most favorite things that I do. It's called Cash and Burn, where I get to talk to other software executives and founders about the biggest challenges they face with um, building and running their businesses and how they overcome them. So it's really cathartic because I get to talk about all the stuff that we all face all the time and we're trying right. to survive and uh, hear other <laughs> people's perspective of it. But then he really focused on messaging and positioning. And I thought was really fascinating, a, um, a self-led buyer journey of how do you get someone to fully educate themselves on who we are and what we do and what value we can so- or produce for them without them ever talking to you? He's done a really good job of that. So it's been exciting to see that. We did a whole brand refresh um, in the beginning of this year, new website, new positioning, and it's and so far off to a great success. So how did you make that switch? Was it just bringing in VP of marketing and his strategy to switch from outbound to inbound? Is that That is a fundamental difference for sure. Yeah, I talk about this quite a bit where the number one thing, we had to figure out product market fit. It didn't matter what marketing we had or how we were trying to talk about ourselves. If the product really didn't fit who we were trying to sell it to, it was pointless. Um, and we essentially reverse engineered to get to where we're at. Like, I look at this and say, we did the hardest part first. Building a financial forecasting tool is extremely difficult because there's there's no room for error. It just has to be right. Right. Um, what that did for us is it really allowed us to build a very, very strong technical financial foundation. Um, so everything we do flows into finance. So we built finance first and then built billing and revenue and subscription management, which allowed that all now to seamlessly make sense going from sales to, to from sales to cash. So, but we had to figure out who was the buyer? Why would they buy this? What was the real value that we would solve? And as we did that, you know, our value prop grew dramatically. Our, our, you know, our average sales price went way up. Um, but then also our average win rate up seven X, um, just because it was a better fit. So once you had that, then you could really start thinking about, okay, now that we understand who needs to buy this and now that we understand the real big picture problem that we solve, how do we talk about that? Um, and that's where it led to how do we make this in plain English so that anyone that comes to the website or, or interacts with us knows what we do um, and make it compelling and do things like we don't usually have gated content. Usually all of our content, go to our website, watch a demo, do whatever. You, there's very few things that are actually gated because we want you to educate yourself as much as possible before you have to do one of the most difficult things, which is say, click the request a demo. Cause you know, once you request a demo, now you're in a sales cycle and you're going to be consumed with this company chasing you to try to get you to buy their product. So it was a fascinating uh, journey that, that we're still on. I mean, we still are figuring out things as we go. We have a long road to go, but we're, we're moving in the right direction. 
So what was the, the moment where you realized that, that you didn't have product market fit? And then how did you know when you did? We just couldn't get our win rate to go up. You know, we were consistent at about a 6% win rate, which sucks. Um, I've never had a consistent win rate that wow. low. Um, and it was, you know, talking to some really great people, some really great prospects that nearly bought, but then we lost. Um, and then really digging into why was that happening? Um, and then fortunately, a lot of those prospects gave us their time. Um, we asked for it, um, but they gave us their time and they, like, we went into those conversations, not trying to resell them. Uh, and a lot of those sure. conversations I had myself of, I just want to learn. I just want to learn why I want to learn who he bought. I want to just make things better. And, you know, everyone was really nice and, and really trying to be helpful. Um, and then when we started to test things of like, well, let's test revenue, let's test building. Saw a pop immediately. Um, and then we saw the big pop when we said, let's test subscription management. Like the, all of our customers use Salesforce and all of them are trying to customize Salesforce to do this. Well, what if we make it so they don't have to customize Salesforce? What if we just give them a tool that does it? Well, holy cow, they save a ton of money because they don't have to customize Salesforce and the product continues to evolve with all the latest and greatest innovations for B2B SaaS companies. Okay. There's, there's interest here. And there's also that interest where now you have rev ops, you have the head of, head of customer success, you have the head of sales, you have CEO, everyone's looking at this a little bit differently um, and you could just see the dynamic and the interaction with the people. Um, we had a, this is a good time, signs you have product market fit. We had a $50,000 ACV deal close in seven days um, as soon as they saw all of it. So, you know, there was just indicators of like, okay, there's a there there with this for the market that we're going after, for the types of businesses we're going after. Um, and that's what, you know, what motivates us and makes us super excited because we really do solve such big problems. And, you know, my original foundation thesis from, from wanting to solve the problems with, that I had with Talent Rover, this solves more of the problems that I had at Talent Rover than I even realized. That's a really good place to be. It's and, been a fun journey. So we got a lot, a lot of work to do, but we're definitely moving in the right direction. Yes, yes. And making that shift, I love what you said about a self-led buyer journey. And so it's really giving them the tools to, to say yes. And by the time they, they do raise their hand, they're, they're really ready, which is a very different scenario than outbound cold calling, trying to, to educate them uh, and, and get them to that point where they're ready instead of just, you know, getting them, letting them do that on their own terms at their own pace. Yeah. And I mean, it, it makes all the sense in the world, right? Like when I'm looking at buying something, I spend a lot of time researching if, it, if it's a sure. fairly expensive purchase um, or even a moderately expensive purchase. I'm going to look. I'm going to, you know, try to understand, try to, is this worth me investing my time to explore can this solve the problem? So equipping viewers or prospects with the ability to dig in and, and get that information, it's just, it's a no brainer. So what have been the, the biggest challenges? Uh, you know, three companies, uh, you know, what challenges have you overcome? I mean, challenges are, are endless, right? With building any <laughs> yes, they are. Um, uh, I think with, with Place, I've been really focused on a few different things. I've been focused on, do we have product market fit? Like we were talking about. The current focus is go to market fit. Um, how do we really get the pipeline 
um, and the demand where we needed to be to to hit the ratios we need to hit to get to the financial place that we want to be. Um, and that's where we're currently focused on. And, you know, pipeline right now is, is difficult, I think, for, for everyone. I saw a survey um, out a little while ago that most companies have like a 3x pipeline coverage, which is a, a pretty tight pipeline coverage ratio right now in SaaS um, just due to the economic environment. Um, but the other thing I really focused on with Place is putting a real leadership team in place. Uh, no pun intended, but, you know, hiring folks and, and grooming folks to be able to really run their departments. I was always fortunate to have people that invested that way in me, which is why I got to where I'm at in my career. So I really wanted a VP of marketing, a VP of sale, a VP of ops, head of products, a VP of engineering um, that I'm, I'm, I'm a stickler for titles. Like I, I don't like to give big inflated titles that I want the person to actually be at that level to have that title. And, and at that level for me as a VP that they own their department, they own what needs to happen. They own the results. They own the, the good, the bad. My job is to guide and set direction overall for the company of like, this is what we need to achieve. And then their job is to figure out how we're going to go achieve it. Um, and I'll guide and mentor to, to get us there. And, you know, I think that's one of the things we accomplished really well over the past year is to get those right folks in those seats um, so that they run the day to day. Um, so I can focus more on strategy, investor relationships, trying to be in front of customers as much as possible. Um, one of the things I still hold on to is I like to do as many customer demos as possible. Um, I eventually have to give that up. But typically, if you're going to do a demos with place, at least one of those demos I'm going to be on. That's good. Um, I just love it. I love the interaction with the customer. I love learning what challenges they have. I love being able to relate to them because a lot of the challenges they have are the challenges that I've lived. And also being able to articulate how I think we can help them um, or potentially not help them if, if they're just not the right fit for us as well. Um, so that's been the biggest thing on, on, on the play side. Blueprint Assemble is a little different. I don't run the day-to-day for, for those businesses. My, my partner, Greg, um, he's been running Blueprint and he runs Assemble now. So I spend, I don't know, 25, 30% of my time now on, on both Blueprint Assemble. We're actively hiring a new managing director who's going to run Blueprint on the day-to-day and Greg's uh, going to be running Assemble on the day-to-day. So that world's a little different where I spend a lot of time with Greg, um, a lot of time just helping him and supporting him. He's got a really good business sense and you know we've been working together for, gosh, I don't know, probably about 10 years now. So we know how each other operates. Um, so he's doing a great job. So now it's a matter of, of being able to support him to get him the leadership team that he needs, as well as hiring this new leader at Blueprint so they can run run those businesses while I while I focus on on everything I've got, got going on. And so how hard is it as a leader to let go of those things, to, to hire people and, and let them run? You know, at, at, at Talent Rover, I had such a complete tight control over everything that happened in that company, that it was not healthy. It was not healthy for me and it was not healthy for the company. And I can look back at that company and go, if I would have invested more in the right leaders, we could have been 10, 20x the size that we were. And there's a lot of lessons there. The lessons of you know the right leaders. Now, when I look at hiring someone in a leadership role, I look for, you know, do I really understand the role? Like, what do I need this person to really do? What does the company really need this person to do? But that's only half of it. The other half of it is, who do I need this person to be? And I think that who you need this person to be piece is usually the reason why someone either succeeds or fails in a leadership role. 
because um, they can have the right skill sets and, and background. But if culturally they're not a fit, if they're not aligned, if they don't have the same vision, if they're not the same work ethic, if, if they just don't mesh, there's just going to be such friction that it's going to be difficult. So finding the combination of those two um, pieces of what's the role and who is the person is just critical. Um, so, you know, looking back at Talent River, I didn't get that right on a lot of the roles, um, which I think led to why I felt I could never let go. Um, I also thought I also look back at it was my first company. So I think I had something to prove, you know, that, you know, we're going to build this and I'm leading this and, and all of that. And that ego play, um, I think, hindered the company. Um, so now when I look at the current companies, this is not all about me. Like, I don't actually need to be doing what I'm doing now. I just love building companies. And I'm passionate about Salesforce ecosystem. And I'm passionate about solving the problems. And now I'm really passionate about how do I get you know future leaders? How do I develop people to do things bigger than what I've done? Um, so that's the focus of... of you know, where we go. But, you know, the lessons there is uh, tremendous that you have to be able to build a leadership team and let them, let them do their thing, give them the power, give them the control, put, put the right processes in place. So you can trust the person. Like trust for me is like probably the number one thing uh, out of everything. Like, I don't care if you make a mistake, just let's talk about the mistakes and let's try not to make the mistake again and continue to make the mistake. Okay. That's a problem. Um, but I think genuinely people want to do a good job. They want to succeed. They want to be successful in what they're doing. And if you can help them figure that out, like so many people helped me figure that out, um, then you can develop the right relationships, the right trust, the right friendships, the right loyalty to each other. Um, I always say invest in those who invest in you. And that goes both ways. Like people joining an early stage company and wanting to work with me, they're investing in me. I need to invest in them and I right. need to make sure I'm doing everything I can make to do to make them successful. Because at the end of the day, I'm hiring them to do their job and I need them to be successful at doing their job so I can go do my job, which is why I can do so many things that I'm doing right now, uh, because I have the right people in, in places to be able to to do that and that I trust to be able to do that. So you mentioned that a couple of times, what role have mentors played in your success? Gosh, everything. So I remember uh, my first role back when I was in school at, at, uh, at Bank of America. Back then it was called um, Barnett Bank and then it became Nations Bank and then it became B of A. Um, and I was a teller, um, part-time teller. And I had a executive vice president named Gail who liked me. I liked her. Um, we were chatting one day and, she, and I just asked her, I'm like, what do I need to do to get your job? And she's like, okay, well, I'll tell you. It's a brilliant um, question. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't say it in a cocky or anything way like that. I was just genuine. I'm like, how do I, how do I get to where you're at? Um, and she gave me goals. Um, and those goals I went out and crushed and I did things other people weren't going to do to, to do those. And I moved up and, you know, I was managing my first bank when I was 21 years old. And wow. that's a lot of trust for Bank of America to say, Hey, 21 year old, go, go manage this banking center for us. Um, but it was that belief in me that she said, if you want to do this, here's what you need to go do. And then I went and did it. And then, you know, I had Kent at, at CV Partners, who became my uh, business partner at Talent Rover, it was the same thing. Like, I remember I was doing headhunting for, for CV Partners, so recruiting like VPs of finance and CFOs and all of that. Um, and I got randomly recruited to Google. So it was funny. Google called me and said, hey, do you want to talk? I'm like, 
well, if Google calls you, you're going to go see <laughs> That's a call that you have to take, right? Yeah. So I went through, I don't know, 15, 20 interviews with them and finally got a crazy offer that was making two to three times what I was making. And I was flattered and excited about it, but I wasn't genuinely looking to move. So I went back to, to Kent um, and I said, hey, can we talk? Which is the one thing every manager hates when yes, employee yes. comes to school and says, hey, phrase. Yeah, great. You're quitting. Um, so I told him what was up, and he's like, "Well, I, give me a few hours. Let's 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 talk about this." I'm like, "Yeah, fine." Comes back a few hours later and says, "I can't pay you what they're wanting to pay you." I'm like, I wasn't asking you to do that. Um, he said, "Well, why don't why don't you take over running technology for the company?" And I was like, well, I have no experience doing that. Um, he's like, "I know, but you've managed people. You're the most technical guy I know." I have confidence you can do this. And I said, yes, I'll do that. And, you know, got basically no raise or anything like that. But that belief in me changed the, the direction of my career because what that led to was the opportunity to one, learn how to manage technology for a company, but it led to the eventual idea of, I think I can create a different software for us to use. And when I went to Kent and said, Hey, I think I can build us a better software to run the company. Thought I was a little nuts, um, but, you know, believed in me. I did all the due diligence, came back with the business plan, all of that stuff, and decided to take the risk. And then a short time later, as the software was becoming more of a real thing, I went back to Kent and said, why don't we commercialize this thing? And then he thought I was really nuts. Um, but again, we went through all the stuff, did the diligence and all that, decided to do it. And it was those relationships and that, you know, investment in me or trust in me and then me working my ass off to deliver that changed the course of my life and has me doing what I'm doing now. And not only changed the course of your life, but uh, your teams and employees and, and their families and, and so much. The ripple effect of that is so huge. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's been a fun journey. We still have got a lot to do, but uh, uh, it's, it's a fun ride, regardless of how stressful it can be. Well, tell me a little more about the podcast, Cash and Burn. Cash and Burn is great. So it comes out every Tuesday. Um, I'm always looking for great guests. So if anyone listening wants to come on, feel free to hit me up. LinkedIn's the easiest way to get, get a hold of me by far. But it's, it's a half hour show once a week where it's really broken up into three sections. Um, so once the first section is guests, just who they are, what their company does, which is always fascinating. And it's, it's uh, a piece that I hear a lot from listeners that they want to hear the context about who the person is before we get into some of the stories. Um, and then the, the whole main part of the show is the guests tell stories about, you know, what they struggled with or near bankruptcy. Like one of our guests, uh, Jonathan Corey, one of my favorite episodes, I think he's like my third or fourth episode. He talks about he and his business partner, they were running a firm in London, a software firm, and they had plateaued at, at revenue, at, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars of, of ARR and they were just done. And one Friday they looked at each other and basically said, are you done? I'm done. Let's go to the pub. And they went to the pub and it was pretty much the mindset of we're going to close the business. So they came back the next week after having, you know, probably a very depressing weekend. Um, and you know, they decided that Jonathan was going to go out and just try to sell some stuff, just sell some stuff because buy us some more time for us to find a buyer of the company. So that we can give our employees a home. So we don't just like shut down the company and no one has a job. So Jonathan went out and started selling stuff. 
Well, by him just going out and selling stuff, all of a sudden the company turned around and they're still in business and still doing well. So it's kind of stories like that, or like Henry Shuck from Zoom Info, where we talk about early days of, of Zoom Info, which was discovered back then, he had a, an alias and he would cold call and do outbound sales himself under an alias because he didn't want people to know the founder of the company was grown. Henry and I met um, at a staffing trade show where Zoom Info was probably, I don't know, $15, $18 million in, in revenue. And Henry was still working the trade show floor. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really interesting stories. I mean, there's stories about people getting sued and how do you focus on the things you can control and the things you, and not focus on the things you can't control. Um, there's Tom Kiley from Source Day here in Austin, where he was just a couple of days away from bankruptcy because he was selling enterprise deals and one was taking longer and he was almost out of cash to cover payroll. So it's, it's just fascinating to hear all the different stories. But for anyone who's been building businesses or in uh, a startup that's growing, these are kind of all the stories that we all know about, but no one talks about. Um, and then the last part of the show is I always talk about what if, what do they think other uh, founders or execs should be focused on right now, which is also interesting to see where people's heads are at. Definitely. We'll make sure and link that in the show notes and everybody should be checking out Cash and Burn. And then it's a, it's a fun show. Definitely. Well, we have to bring it back to, to finance and forecasting since that is really kind of the core of the place. <laughs> And, and I know I mean, right now, kind of a, a crazy economic time. I mean, the forecast is is fuzzy for sure. And in your business, uh, so you know, one of your LinkedIn posts, you said you had four different forecasts. So tell me about that and how you use each one. Yeah, I've always really ran that way where, you know, I have four basic scenarios in my head. I have, this is what I think is going to happen. Um, I have, this is what thing, uh, where, where I think if things went better than I thought they could, what do we do? Then I have the, okay, if things don't go as well as I think we can do, what are we at then? And then I have the doomsday. If the shit hits the fan and everything stops like it did in COVID and we have no new business coming in at all, what's my plan? And the, the reason why I have four different plans is just to give some guidance. Like I'm very much a planner. If I don't have a plan, I have anxiety. I'm, I'm, I'm just not right in my head. Like I've got to have some structure as to where I'm going to go, which is kind of an interesting thing, right? For a guy that's building startups, you can have the best laid out plan and things never go to that plan. Right, right. That's why you got to have the plan. And that's why you have the plan of the plan. Um, so this just gives me in the team the ability to say, okay, if we do what we think we're going to do, here's how much money we can spend. This is what we should expect. This is how you should think about operating the business. If we see that all of a sudden we're not hitting those sales numbers, we're not going to have that cash coming in. Okay, well, what's the plan then? So that it's not an immediate panic of we don't have any money. It's more so, okay. We're slower now, so that's going to impact downstream. What do we do now to help that? Or vice versa. Like You also want to take advantage of, if you're doing better than you thought, how do you invest in making sure you're leveraging that additional sales revenue or whatever to right. get you where you want to be? And then there's the piece that, and this just comes from running um, businesses that aren't profitable and need funding, there's the doomsday. Uh, if I have no cash from customers coming in, what happens to the business and what's my plan. Um, for, and having those four just gives me the ability to sleep at night. So I know where I'm at. Um, and then there's things that, that come off of those. Like there's a weekly cash forecast that I do. So I like to know, and I'm personally involved in the weekly cash and I'm involved in, 
you know, what cash is supposed to come in, what cash is supposed to come out. Let's have a conversation and talk about what's happening. Let's talk about a conversation of, you know, let's look at the patterns of customer payments. As much as the invoice is supposed to be paid today, what's the behavior of the customer? Is it going to get paid? How should we forecast? And then the same thing on expenses. Like, are we going to have enough cash to cover expenses? And the number one thing that always has to be paid is payroll. So regardless of anything else in the world, is payroll covered? Great. Now let's look at all the other expenses that we should be paying to, to operate the business. And it just keeps me sane. Um, with with so many different things going on, that is always the center point of, of my world is, is the cash, the money. Um, because if we run into cash, it doesn't matter what we do. That sounds like a really, really good plan. And at the same time, it sounds exhausting without a tool like Place. So does Place, place make that easy for you? Helpful. Yeah, I mean, because one of the things that we did with it is I wanted to direct method cash flow forecasting, which, you know, there's two types of cash forecasting, indirect and direct. Um, so indirect is you're basically looking at your total ARR and AP and seeing what, you know, the, the movement of that, how much cash you think is going to come in or out. Direct is it's like balancing your own personal checkbook. What transactions coming in, what transactions going out, which is very intense. But if you get to that transaction level, you really have granular visibility as to what is happening with the business and what's happening with your cash flow to know what you're going to pay or not pay. Which if you have a lot of cash in the bank, you may not need to get to that point. But when you're starting to run low on cash and you're starting to really manage like, okay, what's the next three to six months look like? That is the only way that I know of that you can actually understand where the business is at and what needs to happen to keep the business going. It's just a sanity check for me. So, you know, after we do a fundraising round, if we have a couple million dollars in the bank, I don't pay as close to it on a weekly basis. Um, but, you know, as we're starting to get lower than a million dollars and all of a sudden it's like, okay, where, where are we at? Um, and then each of the businesses is different. Like Blueprint, we do a weekly cash forecast because I've never raised money for that company. Um, and I'm never going to plan. I, I don't plan on raising money for that company. It's a profitable business. But I need to see cash over week over week to make sure that cash flow is, is healthy. So, uh, I, I personally would not know how to run a business without getting that close to the financials. Um, it's just what makes me tick. And what size company should be thinking about this? I mean, you, you're saying you're using it in Blueprint, using it in Assemble. At uh, what stage should they be thinking about putting a tool like this in place? Yeah, I mean, with with the place product, it depends. Like, because you know, financial forecasting. It just depends on, on how much cash flow you have. It depends on how much cash you have. Um, it depends on if you have a finance person or not. Um, like if you're a brand new company, like Assemble, for example, that we launched in September, I liked using Place because I could build out a financial model to understand where it's going to go. Um, I didn't really need Place for Assemble yet because we don't have a ton of subscriptions or invo- invoices or bills yet. So it's mm, the model's good. Typically what we see is companies that have you know, 25 to 30 employees, that's when this need starts to come in. Unless you're in a company that you have a high volume of invoices or high volume of customer subscriptions, then you need something like this sooner. But usually that 25 to 25-ish is where you start to see the need, especially from a, a finance standpoint as well. When you start raising money and under and having investors you need to report to and all sure. of that, then you definitely need to make sure this because now it's not just keeping you saying it's your investors want to know where the money's at. Um, so our, our typical ICP for place is usually companies between 25 and a thousand employees is, is our sweet spot that like to use Salesforce. That makes sense. And it only runs on Salesforce or runs 
independent. Only on Salesforce. Uh, we get a lot of HubSpot customers saying, can you do this at HubSpot? And, <laughs> maybe know, one day. Well, maybe, but yeah, it's one of my focal points is like, we want to do this in Salesforce. Salesforce is a huge ecosystem. And right. I also have a belief, and I could be wrong on this, people like to uh, push push back on this, but I think all software companies eventually go to Salesforce. I think you can only go so far in HubSpot. Like, and I say that, and I love HubSpot marketing. I actually like HubSpot marketing better than Salesforce as part of. Um, but I think from a CRM and a business operation tool, you're going to end up on Salesforce. Um, and from an economic standpoint for us as a company, we like the mid-sized companies and we like where they're going to grow. We like to be on sure. a platform that, uh, that we can grow with companies. So I don't think we would switch out of Salesforce. I think potential growth for place would expand out of B2B SaaS and maybe go into another industry segment and help them, but still inside of Salesforce. And that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's always a temptation for founders is to, well, there's another one, there's HubSpot, there, there's other places that we could go. But you look at the Salesforce ecosystem and you're talking thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of companies and you know in your sweet spot. So it makes a lot more sense to just expand out of SaaS into another industry within that, that ecosystem and try and go build it for something else. Our product is actually built inside of Salesforce. So it's not an external product that integrates with Salesforce. We're actually in Salesforce. So if we ever want to do something in HubSpot, that's going to be an interesting challenge, uh, which is why it's probably never going to be a thing. That makes sense. Well, where can people find out more about you and about Place online? Easiest thing for me is just go to LinkedIn and find me on there. So, um, and then uh, placetechnology.com is all things about place. Check it out. Hopefully, if what I'm saying is true, you can self educate yourself on what we do and why we do it. So, if you can't, please let me know. I'd love self-led to that. funnel. I love that. Um, but yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is kind of the center hub for, for my world. So I'm not, I tried to do Twitter and I failed at it. And it's really, it's just not my jam. Um, but LinkedIn, you'll hear a lot from me. So go there. Sounds great. We'll make sure and link uh, LinkedIn in the, the show notes as well as Cash and Burn. Everybody's got to check that out and placetechnology.com. Cool. It's great talking with you. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. Thanks again, Brandon, for coming on the show and sharing your journey, insights, and wisdom gained from multiple companies. Now, I always love hearing from someone who hasn't been successful just once, but uh, two, three, four times and more. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. If you're getting value from the show, subscribe or follow us here or pick your platform at sasfuel.com. Everyone who subscribes this week gets tech buzzword bingo card, guaranteed to make your next Zoom meeting a lot more entertaining. Join us next time on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series when we talk with Ryan Rood, founder and CEO of Lake One. Lake One teams up with B2B brands to optimize revenue systems by developing laser-focused strategies to reach their buyers and align sales and marketing tech stacks. Alignment leads to profits. It's a great episode. And our founder next Tuesday is Dennis Kelly. He is a six-time founder and currently founder and CEO of Postalytics, who helps marketers reach their audience via direct mail. Is it a viable channel in today's market? Come check it out next week. So I will see you then. And as always, remote or in the office, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, 
please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sassfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.